If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Data Chats. I'm your host, Chris Richardson. And today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Kevin Hannigan, Chief Learning Officer at Click and Chair of the Advisory Board of the Data Literacy Project. And especially interesting after having just read this, author of Turning Data into Wisdom, how we can collaborate with data to change ourselves, our organizations, and even the world. Kevin, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to pick your brain on so many different subjects, but maybe just to begin, you can tell us and your, the listeners a little bit about what you've been up to, about your experience, where you're coming from. Absolutely. Um, so I have a, a little bit of a unique background experience that led to this point and in, into the book and where I am now. Um, so undergraduate, I had a computer science degree and I, and I loved the technical aspect of things. Um, and over time, I, I started realizing I really like um, teaching, um, taking complex topics and converting them back to, you know, things that people can understand and comprehend and, and increase their knowledge transfer. And so I started taking a few jobs where I was able to educate um, organizations and individuals, um, eventually went back and got some uh, master's degrees in adult learning and structural design. And really where this all started was I would teach um, companies and people and individuals about business intelligence and how they can use analytics to make decisions. And what really was driving me now is a lot of people will learn how to use a tool, but they don't learn how to make decisions and, and challenge the data that the tool is giving them, challenge the insights. Um, and so it led me down a path of doing some more research on neuroscience and psychology. And it really was this aha moment that there's just so much data out there that we all could benefit from, but there's so many challenges and roadblocks that get in the way that, that impact us that, that we need to overcome. And many of them are skills we you know, could have learned back in primary school and just forgotten. Some of them are new skills. They're not just technical. So I, I love this space because it's a, a blend of technology, but also of more of the softer skills combined. Yeah. And you make that clear in the book too, that it's not just technical skills. I think a lot of people are under the impression that, you know, data is out there. We need to use data. So let's find someone who has the technical knowledge, but that's only, you know, at best 50% of it. What do people miss when they're starting to think about incorporating more data, be trying to become more data driven? What tends to be forgotten or left out when those projects start? Yeah. I think one of the big things is we go back to the soft skills. So, you know, did you identify the right problem? Is the problem that you're being asked to solve with data tied to the organizational strategy? And if it's not, why bother? Um, do we actually do root cause analysis? So do we understand how the organization is working? And, and what I mean by that is there's many times a data point might give us an answer, like the question is our sales down? And the data clearly states, yes, our sales are down this quarter compared to last quarter. but I wouldn't necessarily act on that just as if I'd want to challenge it and say, well, why is it down? 
what's changed? What are my assumptions that are my mental models that I hold to be true? And I think everyone's jumping into, there's so much data, we have analytics, we're coming up with insights, we're failing to miss that we all have bias and that mm -hmm. bias can cause us to look at the data and not say the data is lying, but it's misleading. It's not giving us the right context. And so a lot of this about active listening, listening to your colleagues, listening to your stakeholders, um, understanding if you have a confirmation bias or any other cognitive bias that could be impacting it. Things like challenging your assumptions so that the data might be telling you one thing, but you're coming up with that decision because inside of your brain, unconsciously, you're holding a mental model of what you believe to be true. And you know, let's face it, in today's world, really the only change is the thing that's constant is change. Everything's changing. So what was true you know, last week might not be true this week. If you're a perpetual software company and you have the right metrics, your interpretation of a number, maybe that's not the right interpretation if you're a subscription company, as an mm -hmm. example. And all of those things don't relate to necessarily getting the answer from the data, from the visualization. They relate to how do you put that in the right context and how do you understand why it is and then come up you know, systemically with the right decisions for it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things I've been working on myself as an instructional designer at Pragmatic is talking to people and hearing about the struggle that often occurs when a product team or a product um, manager will have an idea for a data project, know that they want certain answers, and then they talk to a data team, maybe that's a data analyst, maybe it's a data scientist or, or a larger group, and it seems like the two just aren't connecting the way that you would hope, right? You want a seamless, you know, back and forth. I want to know this here. We can tell you this, but it often never happens like that, right? There are a lot of uh, bumps in the road. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about maybe in your experience or what you've uh, been learning as you were putting this book together and what are some of those steps that product people might be able to take to communicate better with their data teams? And maybe what are some steps that data teams can take to make sure that they're answering what the product people actually want to know and what they what they need. Absolutely, and lots of good content here, and we can take you know different angles. I, I, starting at the top, the biggest thing is, is having a growth mindset. Is acknowledging whether you're the data team or the product team um, that you might not have all the right context. Acknowledging you're going to be open and actively listening. And studies show when when we're communicating in an organization. Most of us have, you know, a, a discussion, which I would just say is a glorified name for a debate. Your goal as the person in the discussion is to get your point across to everyone else in the organization, no matter what. You're not listening. As they're talking, you're unconsciously saying how you're going to contradict that and prove your point. When you're dialoguing, the whole concept, the whole mindset is you're suspending your beliefs and you're actually trying to understand the other perspective. Now, it sounds easy, sounds like common sense, but studies show just it, it's hard for us to innately do that. Mm -hmm. We're programmed to try to get our points across and communicate it to everyone. Um, so I would say a deliberate practice of, of dialoguing versus discussion and debate is, is a huge step forward. Um, we also talk a lot about active listening, which ties to that, right? If you're, if you're dialoguing, you're actively listening. If you think about um, going back to primary schools, it, it's the form of communication we use the most, right? We listen, but we don't have classes on listening. We have classes on reading and we have classes on writing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to bring that other mode, the, the popular one, listening back into that. Um, so that's more from a mindset perspective, from an actual knowledge and skills. I think one one overarching skill that's massively powerful on both sides is the concept of systems thinking. Mm-hmm. We are living in this world that there's an acronym that calls VUCA, right? It's volatile, volatile um, complex, ambiguous, and uncertain. And that means that you know our, our mental models and our brains are rocked with all of this complexity and, and uncertainty of things. We're going to get situations where the product team is going to be giving demographics about the, the segmentation and the telemetry. And we really need the data team to be thinking systemically about what that data means to them, what are some other components of the data, and vice versa. Um, if you're not doing that, you're looking at it very linearly, you're looking at it very one-dimensionally, and, and you might come up with some improvements, but you're not you know, going the next mile to get exponential increases. So one of the things we talk about is, is try to think exponentially instead of thinking linearly, which again, is a lot easier said than done. Yeah, I think that goes with a lot of this, right? It sounds it sounds sort of obvious, like we should listen to each other. And yet mm-hmm. that's often a point that actually breaks down and doesn't work, even though it should be second nature. We all, we all do it, but we don't do it well. And I think you could say the same about data in general. So that said, what are ways, I guess, that we can challenge ourselves? So, you know, if somebody's listening to this thinking, well, I listen well, you know, I'm listening to this podcast, I listen to people, I'm doing fine. Are there things that you would say to them, well, have you considered this or would you try doing this next time and see? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one technique that I use quite a bit is I will um, take notes next to me when I'm listening and and I try to revert back to um, paraphrasing what the person said, because if I'm knowing that I have to paraphrase what they said, I'm intentionally listening to them instead of unconsciously droned out. So that's a simple tip that I always do. And then I might say at the end, you know, Chris, just based off, you know, what you were saying, I just want to make sure I understand you're saying, and then whatever I recap, you said, that's one way to validate that we're listening that doesn't take a lot of um, training perspective. There is a whole bunch of training we can go down on active Mm -hmm. listening and go into workshops, which I strongly recommend because the more you do it, um, and the more you practice it, the more your brain becomes accustomed to, to um, using it. Uh, one, one example with that, too, around the listening and the challenging of the assumptions, um, we'll use things like the, there's a tool out there called the ladder of inference. And when you come up with a decision or you make a statement, there's going to be assumptions and other things that are not actually true in there. And the ladder of inference will actually walk you backwards from your belief system back to your assumptions, back to the underlying raw data or fact. And it allows you to ask a series of questions through that process where you can open up about where maybe you were misunderstanding and using frameworks like that, um, in addition to just the, the you know, hardcore method of just you know, reciting back really helps me and helps our organizations uh, practice this a lot more and get better at it. Yeah, one of the other things you mentioned already is just, What surprised me most, I guess, the more I learn about data is that we still almost never get a certain answer. Even if we have millions of entries that we're working with and using some advanced machine learning, there's still a bunch of things that somebody had to either decide or they they weren't filled in or so we had to average it or there are all these things. I'm wondering if you have 
yeah, have thoughts about how to deal with uncertainty when I think starting out, the idea is, well, data will get rid of uncertainty, right? It'll tell me exactly what I need to know. And yet I think a lot of people get frustrated down the line saying, we thought we we thought we would get a, a very specific answer. Instead, we got maybe probabilities or we got possibilities that we can further pursue. So it's kind of like, I don't know, for me, I find that it's almost unending, right? You can always be asking more questions and you'll never get a final, final answer. How do you deal with that when you're working on data projects? Yeah, it's a great question. There's two components to that with the uncertainty. I think the first part is educating the leaders, the consumers of that data that you're right, that there is pretty much nothing that's uncertain. We do talk, you know, from a statistics point of view, we could run a model about segmentation of our customers and whether they're gonna buy our product or not. And in the output of the statistics might say something to the leader like, you know, there's a 95% confidence interval in here. Well, that doesn't mean it is, it's 100%. And that doesn't mean if that customer doesn't buy it, the model was wrong. It means mm-hmm. there's a 5% chance, you know, something else happened. I think it's that understanding that everything is a probability, everything is a prediction, right? There is no guaranteed thing in life. And then you add on top of that, the amount of uncertainty we're facing today. That part is challenging because again, the way the brains evolved hundreds of millions of years ago is things didn't change that much. Like it was survival and that was the goal. And now things are changing exponentially. Um, If you even look at technology with Murphy's Law and all of those other um, components, it's almost changing to the point that what my kids are going to school now is going to be outdated before they get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so you add in the fact that we need to educate leaders that, you know, with every decision you make, it's not 100% accurate. We're not going to say, let's invest in this demographic because the model says 100% it's going to get us money. There's going to be some probability and you have to be data literate to understand, is that a good bet? Is that a good probability to go against it? And what are the pros and cons to that. And you have to acknowledge that you're never going to have all the data and you're never going to have all the answers because many times you're looking forward and we don't have any data of what's going to happen in the future. It's not there. So we have to make predictions. We have to use foresight and strategy to to guess about what's going to happen. Yeah. And that's an excellent point, right? There are there are different ways that you can use data. I think most people just inherently jump to the predictive models because they're the most interesting and they're usually what we we want to know the future, but they're also the hardest to get right, especially certainty, which you probably wouldn't ever get with the future. Um, what do you, I mean, say there's a company or, or an organization that's looking to improve their use of data, that's looking to become more data-driven. Would you encourage them to do something more more explanatory in terms of what they do with their data models? Or would you say that maybe prediction is a good place to start or maybe it's not? Where, how, do, how should a, a data company maybe start getting more data savvy, more um, uh, data driven, but not you know, place all their bets in a future prediction that they're not going to get right? Yeah, it's a great point. And there's no right or wrong answer. I think everything is based off the, the, the company and, and so forth. And we'll talk about different dimensions, like they have to have the right culture. I'm a huge fan of if you build it, they won't necessarily come, right? So you might have to start with a culture. And and one way to do that is pick a project, pick one that's probably not tied to the overall strategy of the company. Meaning if the project doesn't take off the company's bankrupt, that Mm -hmm. wouldn't be a good one, but one that's strategic enough that it holds weight and prove it out through that. And then through that, you have a win report and then you can share it 
with the stakeholders, share it with the leaders and say, this is the value, share it with all of those consumers. Um, and after that, to your point of starting with prediction, I always like to start when possible at the beginning of the pipe, which is, is the raw data, the, the data lineage, the data management, the data governance, the data integration into the analytics. We could build a really awesome predictive model, or even on the lower end, we could build a really powerful measurement framework with the right key performance indicators, leading indicators, lagging indicators. But if we don't trust the data, wasted time, and then no one's going to use it. So I'm all about building that trust first with a quick win, building it on the, the front end of the pipe or the, the first part of the pipe by connecting that data and then trying to do some things around strategy. Um, you know, one of the big ones that we see in larger organizations that have a lot of, of history is people stop being creative, people stop being curious, people stop challenging the managers. And you look at the organizations that are agile, that are making data-driven decisions, they're ones that are okay to fail. And I, I don't actually like to say fail fast I because fail means you fail. I like to say fall fast because you can get back up. Mm -hmm. And so those organizations that adopt that from the top, falling fast, learning from it, um, incremental agile improvements, that's where I would start. And then obviously, yes, you need to get into the different processes, decision-making processes, using the right analytic frameworks. Um, and then at the far end, communicating is a key one as well to actually make sure you come up with the best insights in the world that's going to save the organization millions of dollars. If you don't properly communicate it to the people that are, need to change as a result, it's going to fail as well. So it's a, it's a big umbrella, but again, start small, do one big win, and then start with the culture and, and the data so that consumers trust it first. Yeah. Do you have any experience with uh, like specific examples you might be able to give, or even just scenarios where here's a good here's a good example of how to how to start, make sure that you're you're gaining the kinds of insights you want, share it out, and then build on that. Like, what kind of things might you want to consider? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple examples, personal and business wise. You know, one thing in, in my domain is we're looking at, you know, for example, revenue tied to our. Uh, professional services. And so we get a report that will give us a number, but it, it, that number is very, very misleading. Um, and so one of the things we had to do is go back and try to understand root cause analysis, understand why it is. We don't necessarily want to share that out because it's not apples to apples. Things have changed every quarter, every year. So when you look at year over year, it's not apples to apples. Um, something like revenue is also an outcome. It, it's the it's the goal, but there's um, if you're looking at KPIs, that's what we would call a, a lagging indicator. But really what we want to understand to do root cause analysis is we want to understand what drove that outcome. And those drivers are what we call leading indicators. So the action that we could have taken is different depending on those leading indicators. If it was you know what, no customers are getting value from our education, so they're not buying. That's a completely different actionable you know, process than we just have um, demand issues because we don't have necessarily someone selling it, or we're lowering the prices because we're trying to give it to everyone, or mm -hmm. maybe it's a capacity issue is we don't have enough people to deliver it. All of those would have different interventions. So it's really hard for, for me to share out hey, here's what we're doing, here's our numbers, here's why, here's the action plan, 
until we trust that. So we pick that as a pet project. We go into the deep dive. We look at all of the leading indicators. We think systemically about what's impacting it. And then we can go out and communicate a story right, to, to everyone. Here's the data. Here's what it's telling us. Here's why it's telling us this. And based off of this, here's what we're going to do about it. And then most importantly, in a quarter or two, come back and say, here's what we did about it. And here's how it improved our outcomes, our lagging indicators. Um, and, and I give that example because I'm in the education group, but that sits for sales, marketing, mm -hmm. um, even personal stories. We'll use it. You know, I have four kids and we look at all the behavior data that we might be getting from the schools and, and they're just giving us outputs. They're not saying anything with it. They're just giving a number like, you know, your, your son had 10 disciplinary events this, this month. And anytime I can say, so what? It's not really a good story to tell. It, it more makes the, the stakeholder frustrated. It's like, why are you telling me this? What are you going to do about it? What's it happening? Mm. Um, so anytime you're getting as a consumer of data, given a statement that just has numbers and, and they don't really give any context, they don't give any root cause analysis, that's a perfect project to start with. Because if you can't answer or they don't answer the so what to you, it, they've wasted everyone's time. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, I definitely hear from so many stakeholders that they get a bunch of numbers and it's not clear how accurate they may be, but also what to do with those numbers. Exactly. So, so the answering the so what is important. How would you ask people to, I mean, people who are frequently just spitting up numbers, right? I think a lot of people can fall into this, especially when they have some, so many, they've spent so much time they have all these amazing numbers that they've generated through complex algorithms or what have you. They want to share all of that. What do you suggest they do when they're thinking about presenting? I mean, you talk about um, data visualization and, and techniques for data storytelling. What are some key takeaways that people can, can start to implement when they have lots of numbers and you know that they shouldn't be showing all of that, or at least that's not how they should lead a presentation? Yeah, I mean, lots of nuggets here, right? So from a, you mentioned data visualization. I mean, one of the, the challenges I see a lot is someone, always know your audience. I mean, that sounds like 101, but mm -hmm. if you're a data scientist, you're in advanced analytics and you're doing some complex modeling and let's say you use an advanced visualization like a, a box plot or something similar. Now you want to go communicate that out. The worst thing you can do if your audience is not at the same level as you is use that same visualization. They've tuned out. They see numbers. They see lines. They don't get it. So it's not about dumbing it down. It's about prioritizing what the number is and simplifying to just show them that with a story. Studies show people listen and attach emotionally to stories as opposed mm -hmm. to just numbers. So the first thing is, is pick the right visualization, pick the right terminology to map to your stakeholder. You have to kind of know their level. You have to know what's in it for them. And you have to tell that story with the hat on of the so what question. Why does this stakeholder care about this? So if I'm talking about, I'm, I'm came up with numbers on our marketing campaign, um, that story in my action item is I'm gonna request for more money to do you know, double the marketing campaigns next quarter that story and the data I use is going to be very different to the person writing the check than it probably is to the team that's then going to go and have to build the ad for that because their so what is different. Mm -hmm. So it's, it really comes down to knowing the stakeholder, not simplifying, but prioritizing what you're going to show them 
take everything else that's just noise out of that. Um, and that gets you a good, good portion of the way there. Yeah. And I guess the question, the follow-up question there is if you're doing the project, possibly every number is important to you, right? You can't say number one without demonstrating how number two relates to it. And so you have this map in your head from the, from, you know, being in and in it of all of these numbers and how they interact, how would you recommend people choose the right number? I mean, it's one thing to say, what do my uh, stakeholders care about? But when you think, and maybe rightfully so, all of these numbers are connected, you can't take away this number because it fails to you know, provide certain context or something. How do you choose the right number? Yeah, it's a great question. I, so in situations like this, and it goes back to that acronym VUCA, right? Things are complex now, the C in VUCA, right? It's not a simple one-to-one ratio. You know, This number drives this number and you're done. There's probably... 20 other numbers that are driving it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if, if you're you know, lucky enough to have data scientists, that there are algorithms that can help you understand which numbers impact the bottom line more than others, which ones have a higher correlation. But one of the techniques that I like to do, and, and I one of the, the best things I ever did was I went back and I learned about systems thinking. So that's one recommendation to everyone is go back and learn about that. And I'm able to visualize a more or less a system map, which is the organization of all of those correlations that are related or not. Like an example, a very simple example, um, you're looking at weight management, what, what affects it, you know, calories coming in, exercise going out, and you just visualize that. You don't put the numbers there, but you put that kind of mm. weight. And then we'll do that in a business context. If, if the goal is we're driving sales and sales is down, we want to visualize just, I use just like a bubble map, all of the different things that are driving it. Then you can communicate that. And a lot of times, if you do it right, it's a dialogue with the stakeholder. They're agreeing with you. They're disagreeing with you. You're not showing any numbers yet. You're getting them to understand the system. Once they understand the system, then you can hit them with the numbers, the map to those points. Um, before I get to that point, your point of you know which data is important, I need to look at that and figure out which ones are really important. And it could be as simple as if I'm looking at my sales revenue and it's down and I come up with by actively listening to stakeholders, it could be because we're discounting more. It could be because we have less sales reps. It could be because we're charging more. It could be because the supply chain is slower and we're having customer sat issues and the I could come up with 50 reasons that would impact the sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd write them all down. And then I would look at which ones are driving that. Now, if we notice that from last time we looked to this time, we're actually selling more units, but we're discounting, say, like 50% more, then I'm using my critical thinking to say, okay, the root cause here is we're actually selling. Okay, we have the demand, we have the capacity. We just need to change our discount strategy. And I would focus on the discount number to share with my stakeholders because that's the one that's coming up. Now, that's a simple example. You add hundreds of variables and hundreds of hidden variables where you don't mm-hmm. understand the complexity. It does become a little bit of an art and science um, for sure. But using that simple model and then trying to just roll with it and, and add in that complexity usually helps me. Yeah, I mean, that's really helpful. And it actually, reading your your book made me want to think more about uh, systems thinking because it's not something I have a good background, a good grounding in. I, I need 
to improve that myself. Um, for people who want to do that, who want to start thinking in that way, what do you recommend? Where, where might they want to start? Um, I mean, there's a couple books out there on the systems thinker. There's a website, the system thinker. It just, and even without reading them, I, I think just the best way to become a systems thinker is to, it all goes back to a lot of it is not just skills and knowledge. It's a new mindset and you have to perceive the world differently. So that example I gave of, of like weight, where in and out, that, that becomes mm -hmm. a system. And many times you want your systems balanced. And so just next time you run into a business problem, you run into a problem at home, you know, we're spending too much on expenses or um, we're taking too long driving the kids around and we need to minimize that. Think about just the questions are what's impacting the outcome, what's driving it, and then just visualize them, put them down, put them as restraining forces, driving forces, and that will get you excited about thinking systemically. Um, and then you can follow on with the books and the websites and, and others, but it's a, it's an abstract concept. So it's really hard to, you mm -hmm. know, look at a PowerPoint slide and say, okay, I'm thinking systemically. It's, it's really more of a mindset change. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting too, right? A lot of this that we've been discussing, their practices, their skill sets that you need to do as opposed to, you know, re read the point form notes and then you, you got it right. These are things that take time and repetition in most cases to get right and to improve and to continue to improve, um, which actually makes me think of your, your model. And at Pragmatic, we have our own uh, data analysis model, you know, similar cycle from uh, early investigation to eventually sharing out and then reiterating or, or, or considering how you might improve that. And one question that I think we get a lot is when is enough data? Like, when can I move from uh, an, an early investigation to now I'm confident I can go and make my, my changes in my organization, or I can change the strategy. I know it's, and I know like, because I keep getting asked this myself, it's not a question of, well, once you have a hundred or once you have 5,000, but how do you encourage people to think about that? Maybe it relates to systems, maybe not, but um, people often want to know when will I have enough data that I can move on in the next step? And how would you encourage them to think about that? Yeah, it was actually Jeff Bezos who was asked something similar once. And he, he famously said, like, I, and he, he generalized, right? And I'll get into more specifics, but it was something like, you know, if I wait till I have over 70% of the data, I've missed the market. Um, so I, I'm definitely to your point, never wait to 100. But obviously, you have to weigh the lens of that over what type of decision. And, you know, he broke them down into type one and type two, things that are strategic and you make them and you can't ever go back. Um, like changing the company's direction from selling books to selling everything. And then there's those decisions, which are probably more operational and tactical that, that you can recover from. And it, it is a, almost like a personal preference for each individual and each organization. But I will state it really, to me, depends on the culture of that organization. If, if they support the, the falling fast and learning from it and being agile, um, they are able to go when that number is lower and then just assess quickly, do that feedback loop much quicker, learn from it. Um, there's actually a business model out there called the OODA loop, which is first invented by a US Air Force colonel and then actually applied it to business. And it, it talks about just that is you're gonna beat your competition when you're looking at getting to market because you're gonna be faster than them. You're not gonna make the best decision right the first time, but you're gonna learn from it faster and continue to make those maneuvers and adjustments um, and you'll be better off than, than the long ones. So I think the number depends on 
what the culture is to support that type of environment. Yeah, that's a good point. And what about, you know, oftentimes I think at least at my level, the people I'm, I'm dealing with, the people who are taking the courses that uh, I'm helping to create, they are not in charge necessarily of the culture. You know, obviously they contribute to it, but I think one of the frustrations is you might be a, a product manager, you want to be data-driven, but you are also tasked with so many things. You're not going to change the culture of your organization on your own. You're not going to set a memo out to people that, you know, changes a direction. So how can people who are, you know, at, uh, you know, not the CEO level, maybe a few steps down from that, how can they work with that culture maybe make minor improvements within their departments? What do you, what do you encourage for setting that culture? So we actually do become data-driven as much as we can be. Absolutely. I mean, we have to go into it with the mindset that this is a journey. It's not a, all of a sudden today we're not and tomorrow we are. So with that, it goes back to some, you know, mentioned earlier of, of get a quick win, get one. So find something that you do have some control over if that's possible and, and use that to show the value of um, being data-driven data with a culture of you know, maybe the leader isn't the one that made the decision. Maybe it was the people under the leader. Uh, maybe it was a decision you made and then you quickly assessed that, you know, you, now you have more information, you've altered course. If, if you can find one of those quick wins and you can quantify that to the leadership, I guarantee they're going to start listening. Um, because I think everyone wants to be more data informed and more data driven. It's just that hurdle you mentioned of, you know, it's not flipping a switch. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot harder to do it if you just go all in rather than starting with one area, focusing on it, doing it really well. And then everyone will be motivated because they'll see the output. Yeah. And I think there are, there are ideas, there are, are big picture ideas that I think most people get in terms of what a data project might look like, how you might be able to uh, create something that has a strong return on investment, but that, and actually actually doing it, actually knowing what you can can practically do is more difficult. So I'm thinking, you know, you know that you want to drive sales, or you know that you want to create more engagement on your site, you want to create more traffic, you want to get more um, ROI from your ads or what have you. Like these are all things that we know that we could improve. There's a sense that we could improve that with data, but I don't think everyone is clear starting out. What can I actually do with data? So. In other words, I'm curious what you would tell people without the data experience. So people who are working with data teams, but not a data team themselves, what would you encourage them to maybe ask or to try to do early on? Because like I said, you want to drive profit, you want to, you want to drive engagement, but that's not, a, you can't just go to your data team and say, I want to make more money. I mean, you could, but it wouldn't be a very good project. So exactly. what, what do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things, again, going back to systems thinking is, is being able to um, define and identify challenges and business problems without using the data. It, you know, you want to drive sales, maybe you come up with a hypothesis that the data team can test. And by doing that, you know, we don't really use the scientific method a lot in business. We, we tend to look um, unconsciously with confirmation bias. Oh, here's the data. It validates what I was thinking. Let's go run with it. But sometimes the best way to start is to have a hunch and then share that with the data team and the data team will go and try to validate or invalidate it. Either way, if they invalidate it, they have a much better perspective that they can share with you that you can have, If again, if you're active listening 
have that collaboration around what's impacting it, what's not impacting it. I mean, the other thing I'd say too, is people that aren't necessarily using data and work, we're using data every day outside of work. So, you know, think about it from your personal life, think about expense management or weight management or anything like that. You know, what you're using the data for, what it's telling you. And if you don't have the numbers, like for example, if, if you're trying to lose weight um, and you don't have a scale, you don't have that number, but you can still think about, you know, what could I or should I do to lose weight? What would impact it? Um, or if, you know, you're trying to work on expenses and you, for some reason, don't know the numbers of how much you're spending, you can still think about that problem by thinking systemically, you know, what are some ways I can save? What are some things I'm doing that I probably, you know, could give up, um, even if you don't have the number. So think mm -hmm. you, a lot of times my strategy is use personal examples and then generalize that to what you're doing in business. There's probably some more complexity in the business one, but the the core concepts hold true. Yeah, and then when you are like, let's say that you've been able to identify at least some hypotheses you'd like to test. How can somebody outside of the data world make things easier when they come with a request? What have you seen, perhaps, that you know makes it either really challenging to successfully complete it as a data team, or what might help people just get rolling right away? Got it. I see what you're saying. In, in a, a lot of it, again, goes back to systems thinking. So if I go to the data team and say, my hypothesis is my sales are down and, and I, my hypothesis is they're down because the competitors are um, charging less and so therefore giving the customer more value. One of the things that I would go to the team with is I would go to the team with um, data objects. And what I mean by that is it's not the number it's okay here are the things that are relevant um because the the challenge with the data team is they obviously know data they know analytics they know data science but they don't know your business and so you're really trying to translate and put the hat on of okay i think i know the business but here's i need them to do the work what can i tell someone assuming they know nothing about my business so data objects are the things that are impacting that number so we mentioned because the competitors. So where can we go and get information on competitors? Maybe it's in our own Salesforce. We have a win-loss bucket tied to competitors. Maybe there's third-party analyst firms. Maybe it's a public company. If we can get that on, um, on the you know, public websites. And I think that's one of the eye-openers for a lot of people is when we're talking about acquiring the data, it's not just your data. Mm -hmm. It's data that's out there. It's public data. It's data from different websites. It's sometimes qualitative data, if you have the technologies to, you know, listen to social media tweets, understand sentiment and so forth, that anything you can give them and put in kind of, I call it a data object, because again, my background is computer science, doesn't have the numbers, but it has like the definition of what it is. Mm -hmm. That usually helps them get started. Obviously, if you have access to it, um, that's great, but you leave then the data team to do the right transformations on it, do the right auditing and cleaning, that's what they're experts on, but it's putting the hat on of if they don't understand your business, how do you translate to them all of the objects that are relevant to it? Yeah. And that's a great point too, because I think a lot of people read about amazing advances, IBM, Amazon, Google, and then they want their data teams to do it, but they're not taking in those kinds of objects or at least nothing comparable to the, to the volume 
um, that a lot of these major companies that we think of being data-driven are doing. So what are, what are ways that you can either, um, I don't know, think about collecting more objects or maybe augmenting what you have, especially if you're, you know, sort of a startup or something, you don't have maybe years of, of sales data, years of user experience that you can use. Where would you encourage people get more data if, if not from their own companies? Absolutely. I mean, first I'd say use a uh, methodology, use like a systematic process for capturing. And when it's a systematic process, it'll take you through the different levels. So you know, let's look in the company, what qualitative data do we have? And you can come up with a checklist. What, what um, quantitative data do we have? If, if we don't and we have qualitative, you know, do we do focus groups? Do we do interviews? Do we do surveys? Um, what unstructured data do we have? Do we have internal um, social media chat groups where people are commenting on things? And then when you're thinking systemically, it's not just in the organization, it's outside the organization. So you go through the same list. What are some sites and resources that are seen as best practices? You know, when I was growing up, I'd always go to the library and get the um, Consumer Reports magazine to find out, you know, what's the best microwave to buy. Now everything's online, but who, who is that Consumer Reports for your business? Is there one? Are there people that do competitive analysis? Partners are a huge one because many times they're working with multiple vendors, you as well as other competitors. So I, I like to you know, systemize it by different dimensions, internal, external, quantitative, qualitative, structured, unstructured, and then also upstream and downstream. So downstream um, and upstream, one could be the consumers, right? Are you looking on sites that do reviews like Amazon does for, for products? Are you looking at the people who are in your supply chain on the other end of the, of the stream? who are having challenges with your processes or your culture or similar. Um, and everything's gonna be a little different for everyone, but if the organization or the individual comes up with that kind of systematic checklist, it will help them. They won't necessarily know what sites to go, but they'll be able to understand what to search for and what to research for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's really helpful for, for thinking about possibilities outside of your, obviously including your own organization, but also outside of it. And then the process that you talk about is always a back and forth, right? You're always trying to iterate, reiterate, see what's working and what's not. And some companies, as you mentioned, will be able to uh, fall fast and recover. Others want to be more cautious. Maybe it's, perhaps it's the industry they're in, you know, they don't want to take risks. Um, how would you encourage people to think about this, these cycles, right? Like in other words, I'm sure there are some data projects that might have a year long cycle that you, you know, you look at later others, maybe, maybe it's even a day. I don't know. Um, what do you encourage people to think about when they're thinking about when, when should I go back and, and reassess? Yeah, it's a great point. I would say go back and reassess as soon as you find out something you didn't know before. Um, and so what I mean by that is you don't want to go through the whole cycle and then say, we're going to assess in 30 days. And then 30 days, you come back, whoa, like if I'm at the front end and I'm asking the question, I'm trying to define the problem. If the problem that's being defined is a little bit different than what I originally thought it was, meaning if someone, you know, my boss says, how are my sales doing? It's really high level. I have to go deeper. And as I go deeper, I'm asking questions. I'm actively listening. I could be actually defining a much different problem than what was originally stated. Then I'd start back at the beginning. When we go into analytics, it's about understanding the right measurement framework. So what is the outcomes, which are lagging indicators? What are the leading indicators? As I go through that process, 
and I find out that one of my leading indicators is triggering like an early warning system, your outcome is going to be lower than planned. Uh, I'm going to go into diagnostic mode and in root cause analysis, any insight I find from there that's going to make my previous KPIs and model less powerful, I'm going to iterate right back into that process. So we talk a lot about agility. We talk about the, the speed of doing it, but it, it is very, not just iterative, but it's also recursive is mm -hmm. as soon as I find something new, I'm going back in my systematic process because usually that means your measurement framework, your KPIs are based off of something that's not as accurate as you know it to be. Yeah. Well, and that reminds me, I mean, of the title of your book, right? Turning Data into Wisdom. Maybe you can say, what is, what is wisdom? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you define it? And how can we go from one to the other? Yeah, so there's a, there's a knowledge management practice, uh, uh, concept out there. It's called the DIKW pyramid, data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Um, some people actually add a U in there for understanding. And it, it, you know, to me, when you get to wisdom, so data is a raw point in time, like your sales were 10 million this month. Information is when you start combining data points together. So 10 million um, this month broken out by net new versus repeat. Um, and how does that compare to last month? What's the trend? And then knowledge is where you start trying to build that hypothesis. You're taking the data and you're understanding your assumptions. You're adding your, your thoughts to be true. And you're then answering the question, okay, my knowledge now is our sales are declining 10% month over month. That's not good. We need to course correct. I think it's happening because we're discounting too high. Where you ultimately get to wisdom is you then put an intervention plan in place for that. And that intervention plan works or doesn't work. You, you kind of assess that, understand more, and go back to the process. But the wisdom is, hey, I know at this point, very common sense one, if I invest more in marketing, we're going to sell more. Like that would be a piece of wisdom. Whether that's true or not for your business, it's only wisdom if for your particular problem, it ends up being a true statement for that point in time. So to me, it's all about wisdom because you're not letting the data drive you. You're letting the data inform you. And then you're applying your perspectives of knowing the business, knowing the space, mitigating your bias, challenging your assumptions. You are going to maximize the, you know, the, the accuracy and the, the value of that decision you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's great advice. And uh, I think that sets up exactly what a lot of people are trying to get at is we have data, but we don't actually have wisdom. How do we get there? So that helps us think about it. Um, I'm curious uh, if people want to know more about you and, and the work you're doing, is there a way that you would encourage them to follow or connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to my website, which is either kevinhannigan.com or turningdataintowisdom.com. I have links there for some blogs that I do and, and some uh, sessions on YouTube and, and other things as well. But that is the place to aggregate all of the content and the contact information is there too, if anyone wants to email or, or contact directly. Perfect. I'll make sure that's in our podcast notes. And then uh, the last question we like to ask is if you could change two things tomorrow, if people could, would do two things tomorrow differently to improve their data process, whatever that might mean, what would you encourage listeners to do, to act on? If they were going to make two changes to the way that they maybe think about data or use data, what would you ask them to do differently? 
I would ask them before they, when they're about to make a decision to pause, stop and ask themselves, when is a scenario that this decision is not accurate? Because many times it's because of an outdated mental model. It's an assumption. It's a confirmation bias. Um, when they're communicating the decision with data, one of the, I guess the other takeaway I'd ask them to is think about who you're telling and make sure you're, you're telling them a story. You're not just giving them a number because they want to listen to a story. And, I, and it, it can be at any level. I know it's easier said than done, but if you stop and consciously think about, am I biased? Are all my assumptions accurate? Um, I guarantee you're going to find a few situations where you're surprised like, wow, you know, yep, that changed and I wasn't aware of it. That's, that's a good you know, process for me to reconsider. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. And of course, anyone listening who wants to know more can read Kevin's uh, work and pick up his book, Turning Data into Wisdom. It's a real pleasure to, to speak with you, Kevin. I, I think uh, we all got a lot out of thinking about data in a different way that will hopefully lead to wisdom. And I, I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. It's been fun. So thank you for having me.